You are now listening to a podcast made in collaboration with the Copenhagen College Radio. Hi, and welcome to episode 20 of the Social Media and Politics Podcast, bringing you expert insights into how social media is changing the political game. I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, political scientist at the University of Copenhagen. If you're just clicking on one of our links on Twitter, you can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are available. And if you are getting this in your feed because you are subscribed, first of all, you're the best. Second of all, you know that our Twitter account is at SMMP Podcast, and you know we have a Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash social media and politics podcast. In this episode, I interview Daniel Fashikas, who is the founder of a company called Bacamo Social, which is a social media consultancy firm that generally monitors the conversations about brands and different consumer goods, but has recently turned its attention to mapping the social media landscape ahead of the French elections coming up. And I can highly recommend this study. You can go to bacamosocial.com, that's B-A-K-A-M-O, social.com, and check out the study, read it for yourself. It has some, you know, key findings, and then you have the, the full report, which is, I'm flipping through it right now. It's uh, it's it's quite dense, but, but really interesting stuff. And my original intention was to kind of go through the study step by step, which we, we sort of do, but then we also get into a sort of bigger discussion about distrust in the media, Russian influence in elections, and kind of what all that means. So it's really interesting, uh, both the work that they're doing and and kind of how the trends they find uh, in the French media landscape leading up to the elections are really indicative of, of what's going on on social media right now, the difference between um, not having a left versus right conversation, but a local versus global elitist conversation. Um the Russian influence in in various um, spheres in the West. And I think the most interesting of all is the lack of common ground between those who are reading traditional news sources versus those who are looking more towards alternative counter-narrative type sites. So Daniel and I, we, we pick this study apart and then just we just get into talking about how this relates to the conversations going on around consumer goods, and what all of this means. And this is the first part of a, of a three-part uh, study, actually. So um, as those come out, we'll throw them out on, on Twitter and Facebook. So um, go ahead and connect with us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, those will be directly in your feeds in, uh, in one form or another. So let's dive right into the interview with uh, Daniel Fajikas, founder of Bacamo Social. Daniel joins us via Skype from Budapest. Daniel, thanks so much for taking the time out. and Welcome to the Social Media and Politics Podcast. Hi, Michael. Very nice to meet you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Bacamo Social? Um, what are you guys doing uh, and, and what's the kind of um, drive behind the company? Well, I founded Bacamo about three years ago now, and it's based on the fact that social media monitoring is so boring. And uh, actually, there's such incredibly interesting information and understanding available from that data if you actually go beyond just counting and coding or something, but you actually read and interpret it. And we do that at scale. So what we do for mostly companies, organizations, NGOs, is to find out what people are talking about, but also why. And in this sense, we, we provide an understanding without asking questions. So the reality 
that we can report on from social media is in a way more powerful than other research methods because we are not perturbing the data through you know asking questions so we don't go in and ask people what do you think your latte is too warm or too cold or does your you know baby screen cream contain too many chemicals no we actually tap into the organic natural conversations and listen if things come up or not now obviously it's quite resource intense because you never know a priori what you are going to find so you don't know what you're searching for but we actually have quite a lot of experience in it and have been delivering studies globally for you know quite a while. Yeah, and what you've recently published is this study, The Role and Impact of Non-Traditional Publishers in the French Elections 2017. What was the kind of motivation behind looking at this political context? Well, actually, quite simple. We got approached by Open Society Foundation and asked if we could use our methodology to understand the social media landscape around the French elections. Uh-huh. And you were specifically looking at sharing of news or news media. What was the focus on on that? Was that something that the um, Open Society wanted you to look at? No, no, no. They asked us, to, you know, they've heard about us. We've worked in the, in the past about uh, on the refugee issues and Ukraine issues. And they've asked us, do you have an approach that we could actually use to bring clarity and understanding and give us an understanding of what's going on? And this is when we actually proposed the observation of links, mm -hmm. of shared links in the discourse. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, super timely uh, and relevant issue. I have the report here, so I'll be kind of flipping through it uh, as we go. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the idea and, and the methods uh, behind it, which is, first of all, which platforms did you look at for this study? Well, I mean, we use a technology called TalkWalker. It's a Luxembourg-based company. And it's uh, one of the, I would say, top five global social media monitoring tools. So what the, the technology that we use monitors basically everything that's part of the open web. So that's, you know, Twitter, open places of Facebook, newspaper comments, YouTube videos, Vimeo videos, Tumblr, blah, and so on and so on. So everything that either has an open API or it can be scraped or collected or, you know, firehose, uh, this platform scrapes it together. But also what's very important, it provides historic data. Uh-huh. So basically, when we work, we can go back at least two years in the data and do our searches. We're not searching the internet. We are searching this technology's database. And how does it work if it's crawling or scraping so many different platforms? Does it have a kind of, what is it called, a, a, a interface that you can... Yeah, of course. And, and you can kind of see, you know, can you segment it by different platforms or is it just kind of all in one big... Well, I mean, you know, like with most of these analytics platforms, their capabilities are amazing, but then at the end of the day, these platforms tend to be quite stupid. So you can set it up in many, many, many different ways, but by itself, it won't know a lot of things. So, you know, most people assume then that you can segment per age or what they say. You can't. You can use keywords and you can use some metadata in order to, to segment. Uh -huh. which is why it was quite important that we used our methodology uh, in order to be able to both understand, so have this qualitative understanding, but also go back into the big data and measure. 
Yes. And I think this is exactly the way to go. Um, this is exactly where we as a company, I mean, sorry for the plug here, but no this problem. Is where we see ourselves is to actually go beyond boring numbers and see what the meaning. And you can only see meaning if you read it and understood it and interpreted it. Yeah. And there's no algorithm that can actually bypass this. Right. And so while we're on that point, let's talk a little bit about the, the methods before we dive into the, yeah. the findings and, and, and everything, which is you use a very interesting approach of, as you said, this, this sort of quantitative big data. But, but you do do a lot of qualitative um, categorization of different things, exactly. kind of incorporating the, uh, a sort of interpretation that's then applied back to the data. So can you talk a little bit about the approach there? I think it's easiest if I take you really – and we can dive into it deeper if you have questions. But let me give you an overview and the listeners an overview. Yes of the whole process and then uh, stop me if anything is unclear. So basically the core idea of the study was when people, you know, let, let me talk about myself. If I want to influence my friends, you know, about something, then I will go into my Facebooks, into my Twitters, into my communities and, and say something, guys, you know, yellow cats are very bad, but no one believes me. So uh, I will actually then go into the yellow hater cat community, find an article, mm -hmm and post that along my opinion because that's how i actually can say you know my meaning my opinion is based on something you know it gives the whole thing gist and it gives it something um, powerful and you can look at the conversations you have with your friends on twitter and facebook tons of people are sharing links about their opinions and about the themes that they care about and it's a way of expressing opinion but being sort of intellectual about it and say, you know, it's not just I hate yellow, but here's five other arguments why yellow is bad. That was the core, like the idea that's behind the study is looking at the sharing behavior across the political discourse can lead us to a, you know, a unique way of looking at the social media landscape. Mm -hmm. And it combines the news offering, so the media offering, but also the engagement of people with it. Because social media is sort of a weird space because it's both individual expressions, but it's also mass and it's also about who is loudest and which opinion is loudest. So, so you have these both um, aspects colliding and with most people actually learning about news through social media and through you know having that social graph in between the media and themselves, this is actually the sharing behavior is quite central to the political discourse. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is the social aspect of social media, right? This kind of sharing and interaction. Yes, but I, I would want you to see this individual behavior of me sharing a link about, you know, anything means that I stress my opinion, I base it on something, and I actually want you or my community to read this article. So in a way, I both argue with it, but also amplify the message of uh, or the reach of these social media sources where articles come from. There's another important definition that we used in this study is that we focused on long form articles. So for a news site to be included, it had to publish long form articles, long form meant more than one paragraph. Mm -hmm. So kind of substantial information. Exactly. We wanted to get away from that 140 Twitter character uh, space and actually look at that sphere where more complex opinions are being developed. Yeah. And then you what you do in the study is you develop this uh, media map. Yes. Um, and, and you 
what you do is you sort of classify the types of news or the sources of news according to five criteria. Um, you have the kind of traditional news sources, um, alternative news sources. Can you go a little bit into that? Yeah, yeah, but maybe I, I want to do a step in between and, and just make sure that the, everyone yes. understands the methodology. So what we've done with our platform is we've built a semantic keyword grid that encompassed really everything uh, we and our experts could think of would come up in a political conversation. So it was like, I think, four dimensions or four types of keywords. There were keywords related to the institution of the elections, you know, like first round, second round, presidential elections, voter commission, you know, all kinds of things that are related to the elections. Mm -hmm. Then there were all the party and names of all parties and all of the candidates and also a lot of the issues that are, you know, often emerging. And people might say something about an issue, but not mention a politician's name. Right. So we then cast this web and pulled in, I don't know, something like 25 million, I don't know, like a massive number of conversations that mm -hmm. took place uh, previously. And, uh, you know, I think we took a six-month sample. And we've analyzed it for messages that entailed links. And we extracted these links and took, I don't know, the top 5,000 and started actually poking in around this. And this is when our qualitative understanding phase started. Right. And this is kind of an approach that a lot of researchers are using as well, is to develop a kind of dictionary of keywords for political content or things that might indicate that the post is political, filter from all the noise, right? Because there's lots of other stuff on social media. There are about 20 billion messages going through every day. Crazy. So you have, so you fil you, you create a dictionary of political keywords. You, you filter those out from the data. And then you look only at those with links that are attached, right? Exactly. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the, actually, the only real way to search social media currently is keywords. Mm-hmm. There are some attempts to do something on images, but it's by far not really working yet. Right. So you actually need to have the concrete consumer language, the, the actual words that people use. And that's very important for social is, you know, you can't just say, oh, I want political messages. You actually have to have the concrete words and phrases that people use. Yeah, I just want to ask, because we're kind of getting into the, the nitty gritty here. Um, oh. If someone posted only a hyperlink, but not any content. So there's sort of a difference between some people will put a, a link to an article. Definitely. I get, I get your point. I mean, the question is, we would not have caught that link. Mm -hmm. Yes. But actually, the phase I was just mentioning was the discovery phase. So we assume law of big numbers. Eventually, people will also share the same link with uh, some phrases. I mean, the, the, the numbers were immense. And we were actually really looking at the domains. People share articles, but we actually cleanse this data in order to get a list of the top domains to which links are pointing. Right, right. And yeah, we kind of went on a, a tangent there, but let's talk about those initial 5,000 and that kind of human classification or kind of going in inductively and, and seeing what's... Indeed. I mean, we, we used um, two, major, two teams, really, uh, an analyst team and a sifter team. Um, the sifter team was, I think, 15 people. Uh, our analyst team was uh, five. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, because we believe in, you know, because in social you don't actually know what you're getting, we 
tend to operate with quite broad and open semantic keyword grids. So we also got a lot of garbage pointing to things that are not relevant. And, and, and for us, relevant was websites that regularly publish long-form content. So we went through every individual page on this 5,000 list and removed the ones that were not relevant. Right, like not like a, a, I don't know, maybe established sites is the right word, but you were looking to see whether the site kind of regularly posts long-form news. Yeah, did it, did it, did it produce some sort of political content that was cast in long form form. So in the meanwhile, our, our, our analyst team started just reading and we, 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 you know, we started collecting and diving into groups and coming up with ways on, on clustering these and, and actually moving them around. And we ended up with a set of, I think, 800 top websites that we actually managed to, to code and analyze in depth. And uh, for each of them, we read several articles, we looked at, you know, how it looked like, what are the advertisements on it, who do they cite, do they have a blog role, do they point to other content, what's the tone that they are working on or, or, or that they're using, what are the typical topics covered mm. by this, you know? And, and so we, we actually looked at it quite in depth. Yeah, I mean, 800, 800 sites, which is the kind of the number you arrived at is, is is a lot of sources. I mean, and this was all all in French, right? Mm -hmm. You're kind of trying to close down just the the French social yeah. media landscape. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are aware that there are you know things coming out from the U.S. and this you know the Pepper the Frog and their influences from other other places, but. Uh, you know, we really wanted to focus on this French media mm. landscape. So you have these 800 um, sites that kind of regularly post long-form news in, in some form of another. Um, what's the next step? Well, the next step was that we we did inter... I mean, it's actually... I'm not sure how familiar you or listeners are with qualitative methodology, but it is basically a natural sort. If you think of a focus group or some other method, basically you are using your analyst team uh, and we've pulled in expertise as well. So, you know, we had the support of Pierre Husky, who is a journalist in France and has been for a while. And uh, he actually has this sort of local knowledge that we don't have. Uh, and we're identifying what are the ideological backgrounds, the topics, the political orientations that could help us to build this map. Now, we actually face quite a lot of difficulties in this because in a way, <laughs> just to, you know, if you look at this map, uh, we try to combine things or put into one sort of space which are hard to put next to each other. So, I mean, to give you an example, is a segment of the political discourse can be beautifully put into this traditional left-right dimension. At the same time, there is this whole new political ideology that is not left-right, which is much more global versus local. Right. And this is a super interesting uh, aspect that I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll be digging into. But <laughs> So, uh, exactly. And so we needed to somehow be, uh, to jix it together. Yeah. But anyways, I mean, what we defined and we, we, we built sort of a, you know, you could think of this whole media map as a as a segmentation on three levels. So first, behind it are individual websites that publish content. We've taken these websites and put them into groups of who do similar things. So we have 
17 clusters of media sources. These are things like petition, comedy, protest and revolution. You know, these are like different groups which can have, you know, a couple of websites, but it can have 40 websites, depending on, on how popular that cluster was and how many websites we found, which were in the top 800. Right. And I mean, there's really, a, a, I'm looking at, there's an entire range. There's a LGBTQ and human rights cluster. There's an anti-Islam, a pro-Islam um, conspiracy uh, environment. Um, so you kind of, you would look to see basically what is the central message of the website. Exactly. Exactly. But, and, and once we had these clusters, I mean, at the same time, we were able to build sections of the media map and you already started talking about it so uh you know we based it and 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 actually you know it came to surprise to many that almost half of the links shared news links shared around the french election were from traditional media right which is kind of i think we we find this in all sorts of different scenarios and context which is in, in, in academia we call it the hybrid media system which is originally there was the idea that social media was this uh you know place for everyone to publish content and it would be a counter narrative to traditional news but i think over and over again we find that traditional news outlets the kind of the, the big players still maintain a, a dominant presence online and you kind of quantify that with basically half about 48.2 percent are um, of the links are coming from traditional news outlets yeah. these are the le mans the local radio stations the local tv stations the you know regional newspaper links to comments that sort of stuff mm -hmm. and you know there's a very very broad you know, traditional media landscape in france Right, because I'm I'm looking at the, I've read the study, but I don't think the, the the listeners have at this point. You have half coming from traditional, and then you have four other categories, which is campaign. Yes, seven point. Sorry, remind me. Seven point four. <laughs> seven point four percent, exactly. Right. So this is the kind of the messages from the the candidates or the parties. Yes, these were websites that clearly were. Republican or Front National or candidate sites. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, it was owned by the campaign. Right. And then, so this is kind of the, the what you'd expect, traditional news and campaigns. And then you have three other categories, extend, reframe, and alternative. Um, exactly. Can you talk about those? Like, um, yes. these these are kind of the, the, the online element. Like, what can social media bring? Exactly. And extend is is a space which widens the coverage of media. So there we have left blogs, right blogs, LBTQ, comedy, all kinds of, you know, without being wanting to be normative, normal things, um, where it ranges from sharing opinions to civic journalism, uh, the place of social media, you know, where people actually contribute. And they reference traditional media, also critique it occasionally, but it, it still has that sense of rationality and actually diving into things in a, in a civilized manner and trying to find more information about something or presenting, you know, uh, a development or events from a specific point of view, like the LBTQ. Right. And then, so it's kind of the I mean, as the, the name extend implies, it's kind of an extension of the coverage from these kind of traditional um, 
outlets. But then you have the juicy stuff, right? Which is the, the reframe and alternative. And reframe is, I, I'd rather let you say it, which is this kind of reinterpretation or this reappropriation of, of news. Well, let, let me start somewhere else. A word that we found on these websites across the spectrum, so both hard left, hard right, across the board in French, it's, it's reinformation. So the reinformation, that's the word they use. Mm-hmm. And basically, this section assumes that traditional media is fake. It's the product of an elitist doing and, uh, you know, the information there is just not reliable. So in order to balance things out, people need to be reinformed mm-hmm. to understand the real context. Right. This is Donald Trump's alternative facts, right? If you want to call it like that, yeah. So to give you a concrete example that stuck in my mind, um, I don't remember which website. It was a right-wing website, but there was a news uh, covered in mainstream media, maybe Le Monde, uh, that Norway is the happiest country in the world, according to some statistic. Mm-hmm. And, and then this Reframe website picked it up and said, yeah, that's true, but they're lying about the reasons. The reason for Norway being so happy is that eight of its 15 ministers are hard right. So it takes some level of information from the traditional space, but reframes it in a way by changing the underlying facts that uh, you actually end up with a totally different story. Mm-hmm. And so what's the, what's the difference between the reframe and then the alternative category? Well, the reframe category actually combats and reflects a lot on traditional media. They, they have these battles going on. And for example, in the upcoming report, we'll look a lot about the mechanisms through which news are placed. But the alternative section is, is quite out there. So we we found two clusters in there. One is the anti-system, and the other one is more the conspiracy space. Um, In a way, you could see it such that one cluster looks at, uh, it's very theological, like it's almost Kabbalistic. So they they are actually looking at the worldview, which entails Illuminatis and... uh, and a conspiracy of Jews, and but it's in a way inward looking. And then there's this anti-system cluster, which looks at the extremely complex, very often pro-Russian uh, geopolitical contexts mm-hmm. that become very quickly so confusing that you have no idea what it's about. Uh, also, what you don't see in the alternative space, there's no differentiation between left and right. It all becomes one mass. You find a lot of characters, like individuals, who used to be either hard left or hard right, and they are switching their positions in there. So it's this pastiche of crazy. Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's interesting because it doesn't quite conform. They're not taking positions based on, you know, these are my left values, these are my right values. It's, it's kind all. of a, I don't know, a orthogonal space that's just that's just out there, right? <laughs> Yeah. And what we found to be extremely interesting is that although the alternative space in itself through sharing is only 5%, it contaminates the reframe, the the section below, which is much bigger, with ideas. So there's lots of anti-Semitism, race, like anti-Islam stuff, like nasty shit. 
and you will find that creeps into the reframe section and they are actually you know basically taking sources from alternative and counter positioning it with sources from traditional media right and this is one of the findings is that you have this this pollination of the alternative into the reframe but that's kind of independent from the traditional media right there's not it is there's not this uh, the sharing that's going on is between this kind of space of conspiracy theories and reframing. And then on the other hand, you have a completely almost independent cluster of the election conversation and facts and and informed opinions. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we as researchers don't we are not going to judge. Right. And, and, and we constantly, re, you know, it, it's not our opinion, but we need to you know represent it. And actually, having been reading these things for the last month or so, <laughs> I've come to the conclusion that, okay, I get it. And I, I get their problem. Yeah, it's not that there's necessarily, you know, it's not that you can't, you can't say that you're, you know, wrong based on your opinions. But the sort of objective finding is that there's not observable interactions between those that engage with this type of news and those that engage with the sort of campaign traditional news. That's absolutely correct. There's a split, there's a cleavage, and regardless of, of which side you're on or how you feel about these issues, yeah. the fact is there's not the social media in this case, and, and I think in most cases, is in a place where people are truly kind of, you know, this digital agora idea, people exchanging news and opinions. There's a cleavage between what types of news people are consuming. Yeah, I mean, we looked at it um, again now in our second report from the idea of the common ground. You know, how much information do people share that overlaps? And and we can actually confirm that finding, having now looked not just at the content and who they cite within the content, but also the sharing behavior around that, you know, especially through influencers and cross-sharing between clusters. And we can see that people actually who, who share articles from the alternative or reframe section are not sharing content from traditional media. Mm -hmm. Which is this kind of, yeah, echo chambers. Um, yeah. Idea. So, so most of the study deals with the extend, reframe, and alternative categories. This kind of indeed. Yes, and you have these these different clusters, which are, as we said, the the kind of the qualitative uh, categories that that you've assigned. And the biggest one is French identity, which had about eleven percent of of links yeah. shared within um, these spaces. So. Um, can you talk about the the kind of the findings of these clusters or or you know you you categorize these into groups and then um looked at the percentage that they made up of this media map right yes but just let me be very precise on what exactly these percentages mean so so we've looked at the you know individual websites that publish articles and we conducted in-depth content analysis on the types of articles they publish. And we try to reverse engineer in a way uh, the idea of what does this news source want? What is the, uh, what are they wanting to achieve? And for example, you brought up Frenchness, uh, French identity. French identity is a hard right cluster. They are, you know, next to the anti-Islam and the uh, anti-global patriots. There are obviously strong overlaps between these uh, clusters. But the key thing that makes the French identity the French identity is that they are 
seeking to go back to or recreate a sense of traditional, simple French identity where, you know, the cheese was good, the bakers were French, the meat was good, and, and you know, and there wasn't a danger of being uh, outpopulated in a way by, by Muslims. For example, the, the section next, or the cluster next to it, the anti-Islam cluster, it focuses only on, uh, you know, the issues and problems created by uh, Muslim, Muslims living in France. Mm-hmm. And just to give a, a, our listeners a sense of, of the type of content here, I think my, my favorite part of the study was um, you break the French identity cluster down into three groups, which is <laughs> Catholics, um, so it's kind of religious-based, regionalists, which is kind of the more uh, local identities of different parts, and then the kind of... Can I jump in there for a second? Sure. The, the regionalists, I mean, in order to understand it, you need to understand that their approach to this whole thing is... Like, we've been colonized once by the French. Let's not be colonized again by migrants. And that's how this regionalist perspective comes in. Mm-hmm. Which, again, fits into this kind of um, this um, local versus anti-elite narrative, not necessarily left and right. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you, it sort of merges at that point. Uh, you know, when you see that, okay, th- this regionalist websites exist in Corsica, in Bretagne, and I think in Catalonia or something like something like this, and uh, it's kind of funny to see how how they actually respond to you know this overall anti-Islamic perspective uh, with the with the idea that they've been already colonized once by the French, and uh, they would like to avoid another one. Yeah, and interestingly, as we're on this point, um, one thing I found interesting was that this kind of segment of the French identity cluster um, seemed to, to very highly praise sort of Central European countries. Uh, Victor Orban from Hungary, for example, um, in terms of the their acceptance of refugees. So interesting connection between a kind of French regional identity linking to a kind of Central European, uh, Hungary, Poland um, attitude towards refugees, seeing these guys as a, a, a yeah, and in Russia as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which oh. we'll get into, but I, I want to go to the 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 religious part, which is it's not all about um, you know Islam and and no 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 no. You're right. The the religious part. I mean, what we call Catholics, it's Catholic identitarians. It's um, it's really. Uh, um, uh, you know, basically fighting gay rights. Yeah. And I just want to read a segment of the study. And, you know, I will be normative here because this is a little bit outlandish. But um, for the Catholics, you say, one line of reasoning seen in these sources is that the real problem with gay marriage is that it creates demand for babies, which in turn create inevitable demand for the scientific production of humans. By this line of argument, sources avoid homophobic reasoning and frame their opposition to gay adoption as a struggle against the instrumentalization of the human body. This is a little bit, uh, a little bit out there in terms that gays shouldn't be allowed to marry because then we won't have any humans left in the world. I mean, this is yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, you you must contextualize it. In France, the debate moved on from gay marriage to gay adoption, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Apparently, it's, it's also mirrored, I think, by Fillon and, and, and conservative candidates that, okay, they can marry, but let's not allow homosexuals to have babies. Uh-huh. So that, that it's framed, with, I mean, it, it's situated within that sort of debate. 
that is playing out in France, but it takes extremely extreme positions. Right, right. But I just wanted to point that out because a lot of the coverage has been about, you know, Le Pen and migrants and, and Islam. Um, and this is a kind of uh, an interesting category that's kind of, it doesn't fit into that paradigm, but it, it was a part of the debate. Yes, yes, yes. It, 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 I mean, it fits into this hard right identity seeking space. For me, for example, what was very interesting about this cluster, especially after having also read it for <laughs> weeks, is that you sort of eventually get beyond the racism and anti-Semitism, and then you actually see the real problems that they talk about, which is like some suburbs of Paris don't have a French baker anymore. Or, you know, it's very, very simple things that are about basically problems of multicultural societies, but probably because... And now that's my opinion here is because uh, the elite or the traditional media doesn't actually talk about these problems in a way of not belittling it. These clusters feel that they need to become really shrill and really loud in order to be heard, to bring a point that, you know, there should be good baguettes and, 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 and also non-halal food in cities, you know? Yeah. And this is, this is something that, I mean, is echoed across a, a many different contexts, which is... And it's also been with with Trump and, and the U.S. election, which is these are legitimate concerns, and they, these these groups do bring up points. And in a democratic society, these voices should be definitely represented. But it's more about the the way or the news sources they cite, the way it's interpreted is can be a bit extreme. And and I mean. I would challenge the bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what I wanted to ask you about this French identity cluster, which was the the most uh, prominent in terms of sharing, is do you think that this has any connection to the kind of French civic culture, right? French are known for having, you know, a very defined set of values, Frenchness, you know, in terms of liberation from the Ancien Regime back in the day. Do you think that there's a sort of cultural explanation for this absolutely i mean everyone is using the, that imagery you know front national is really ingenious in using that sort of uh french historic images and concepts but i think the key thing is that, that they totally see it differently in a way they want to go back to a world which was less complex this was where things worked the french way and uh that whole globalist struggle where your job could be undermined by someone in China or, you know, it, it is an attempt really to reduce complexity. Yeah, this kind of collapsing of complex problems into very simple solutions. As you said, looking back to the um, the lack of baguettes, like going back to a day that doesn't reflect the kind of complex realities that uh, that we're in. Yeah. And, and, and complex realities are sort of then, you know, uh, painted as an elitist uh, Jewish uh, conspiracy, really, mm -hmm. which is what makes this information hard to digest. But what's behind it is that fear of being left behind. Exactly. And along that line, when we look at these uh, non-traditional media outlets more broadly, you find that there is some sort of connection to Russia or Russian influence, which is obviously a huge issue at the moment. Um, can you go into that a little bit in, in terms of what you guys found? Absolutely. 
Well, I mean, and I want to be again very precise of what we've exactly did because it, um, we are not a cyber right. attribution uh, company. We are a qualitative research shop. Uh, so uh, what we've done in order to establish Russian influence is to look at the types of sources these uh, media publishing websites use. So when you go into the social media space in that. But one thing you find is that these websites take their news from, you know, Le Monde, Le Figaro, Reuters, wherever they, they take over information from there and comment it or rewrite it or, you know, and reference it. And, and so it was actually quite mm. possible to, okay, do they cite traditional news or other, other websites here in the reframe section? Or where, where does that come from? And what we found was that a large chunk came from Sputnik and from RT, Russia Today, which um, you know, publishes a lot of content that is not congruent with truth. And uh, also we found another type of websites which were French websites with blogs, but they were clearly marked as Russian. So, you know, you could, you know, with one click, you're reading about something, and then one click later, you find yourself on the Russian Defense Ministry's website. Mm -hmm. Both on the hard right and the hard left, they are, especially in the alternative section, they are like um, clusters, which over 50% of the websites actually take their news from Russian sources. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, what these Russian providers do is basically give a counter narrative to the West, um, which it's a very logical connection to your reframe category, which is, you know, in terms if you want to challenge the the narrative given by the mainstream media or campaigns, the Russian news sources give you a source to draw from. And I think that's that's kind of what's at play here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh... You know, we've been thinking about this a lot, and there will be a, a section on this in our, our second report as well, coming out next week. Um, in a way, and uh, yeah, and that's again my personal opinion, is that what this Russian propaganda does, it, it actually hijacks the rights narrative. Because what they say is that, you know, what Putin does is put Russia first, where like every good leader should. And, you know, France should be France first. And then we don't have to bother with it. You know, we will have less conflict because everyone, you know, the French will look after the French interests first and everything comes second. And, and because Russia subscribes to this, anyone who criticizes Russia or Russian activities, especially in Syria, is actually a traitor. Does it make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, it does. I'm, I'm... I mean, that's the logic with which uh, this is being explained. In the last few weeks, the chemical gas attacks in Syria have moved to the forefront of this discourse. It's I'm I'm just kind of thinking about it now, which is it doesn't seem to be so much that uh, people draw necessarily from the content of of what the, the the Russian sources are putting out, but it might be more of a way of thinking or a more way of reasoning that's re-implemented by the right in, in France. So in terms of like a, the Russians meddling, um, it might not be so much that people are subscribing to exactly what the sources are saying, but at a more meta level, there's a, a way that 
the Russians present news or think about nationalism or politics that is kind of picked up and, and, and reappropriated by the right. I think that's what's going on. That's kind of interesting, which is, as you're saying, Russia first. Russia, you know, the Russians put this out and the, the French non-traditional sites take this and then they say they kind of take the same logic and they put it into to French first and they draw upon a lot of the same ways that the, the Russians present news in the way that they do. So I think it's it's not so much that they, they buy what the Russians are saying, but it's this type of argumentation that they're they're borrowing from. Well, it, it sort of is gets fused into the overall debate against mainstream media, anti-Americanism. It gets paired with a lot of anti-Semitic, uh, you know, uh, discourse, which we see really strongly both on left and right. Uh, it gets meddled into that. So, for example, um, the type of articles that we've seen that contained Russian uh, influence as the last few weeks dealt mostly with Syria, there we see sort of three phases. I mean, there's this whole rejection that Russia was involved in the chemical attacks. There's a reduction of, ah, it's not such a big deal. And finally, there's this sort of relativization, sort of reversal, then actually it's the Americans who did it. Mm-hmm. In, the Fr- in the French news? In the French news about you know, connected with the elections about Syria. Mm-hmm. So they can kind of, I guess the the Russian news sources can kind of keep using this as a, you know, keep bringing it up into the... And they keep bringing it up and they keep trying to wash themselves, you know, whitewash themselves from whatever happened in Syria. Mm-hmm. But what was reported that, you know, there was Russian involvement with the bombing, uh, with the chemical gas usage. Uh and they are trying to find ways to make, you know, the target audience not believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this 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 whole thing is super interesting with <laughs> with the Russians. Um, but I, I want to switch gears a bit to the the campaign section. So yeah. the type of news that the the campaigns were putting out. This is something that I'm, I'm personally very interested in and in working on the connection between campaigns and and media in terms of uh, what they're posting on social media. And you find that the large majority of campaigns don't actually cite other sources. They only put out their campaign messages. Um, do you think that's a, a way to, you know, is that a strategic choice to to control their message and to sort of stay on topic and, and give only their 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 site and not bring in external sources? Um I mean, to be honest, it wasn't this the campaign sites, we mapped them. To have them on the map and see where they, you know, where they are located. We didn't do a content analysis on their content because we didn't think it was that mm. interesting uh, from from our non-traditional point of view here in this study. Uh, in a way, I think you know they are not different than the advertising boards. You know, it's it's just simple advertising. Right, this kind of political marketing. Uh, well, they are not arguing. They are not. You know, they are. You know, they are organizing local communities. They are. You know, announcing uh, rallies. They share videos. They. Yeah. So, so that that's a very conventional marketing space that happens there. It's yeah, like- and the reason I ask you about it is because I was just reading a study last night that was looking at um, how Donald Trump uses or used social media in the American election versus other candidates. And one of the things they said uh, was significant is that he did retweet 
the kind of average citizen, or he did retweet sources outside of his campaign, which was seen as him being more authentic versus other campaigns that were only giving their message, only shooting, you know, videos from the rallies. Oh, I see what you're saying. Mm. Yes, but listen, I think you're, you're, yes, you're right. And you can see that in uh, with um, the handles of Front National doing the same. Mm -hmm. So they actually, there's a lot of outrageous stuff that, is factually not true that is being is being reshared by accounts that are close to Front National. Right. So that that happens. Yeah, and I think this has I think this is kind of understated, which is this has an effect that can help build trust with people who are, you know, identifying with the Front National because they view it as being open and being more kind of real or authentic versus a campaign that's just giving their own message looks very scripted. It looks very, um, yeah, inauthentic and, and, and kind of manipulative. Whereas if you bring in external sources, it, it, it gives you a sense of credibility or at least being in touch that is, is very powerful, I think. Well, and it being interwoven into society, absolutely. And uh, you find a lot of brands doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, for me, that's, Kind of, you know, this is what we deal with every day. This is normal commercial, you know, campaigning. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so that, there, there, there's nothing non-traditional about that. I mean, obviously, reshare. I mean, it's novel for uh, voices of authority to share their authority and thus, you know, actually build it in this mm -hmm. strange way. But this is, you know, the, the true power of social media. Exactly. And so, on that point, um, let's. Let's talk about the kind of one of the main findings, which was this lack of sharing across these sites. And I think this is super interesting for, you know, academics, policymakers, but also just the general public is that there is this this divide between the mainstream and the sort of the counter narrative. And you really kind of find that, which is there isn't sharing that's going on across these these groups. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not sure if you could share one of the, the graphics from the uh, report. Yeah, we'll, we'll, put, we'll put it up on Twitter and, and Facebook. That would be great because we, we had it designed in a way that it shows this curvature of the different segments so that actually you can, when you look at the, the, the landscape, you already see that they actually don't see each other. So there's no uh, you know, line of sight between the far sections of you know, the landscape. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting because social media, I, I would kind of expect the opposite, which is um, because of the algorithms of Facebook, for example, you would kind of expect that even if someone shared a alternative link, that it would somehow permeate the, you know, if, if your friend or a friend of friend shared the link, you would see it. So one of the things I was wondering in the study which is maybe you don't you don't measure the exposure. You only measure the act of sharing. So do you think that because of, of looking only at the shares, you find this divide because people don't reshare it, but they might see it? Uh, yes, it could be po possible. But then again, I mean, think about yourself and how many, I don't know, um, friends you have who, who, who hate Hungarians. I don't know, probably none. You know, like, uh, so, I mean, there's this whole clustering that you see in, across social media that you will befriend people and follow people who tend to, uh, you know, whose opinions you tend to respect. 
uh, obviously there are exceptions of it, but you know what we couldn't we can't find out with our technology to which segments of society these news actually have traveled and actually there is no technology to do that maybe governments have some but commercially it's not possible yeah i mean there's a there's the the sort of things that academics are struggling with is um to what extent is social media this echo chamber or does it expose people to diverse opinions? And I mean, there is no answer. We don't have that data. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I think it's probably an academic question because it's more an imprint than part of everyday human life. Uh, what I see in it and this, especially if I, as I compare it with other work that we've done, I mean, um, is that it speaks to the dissipating trust in the system. Mm-hmm. And I, I, we, we see that, you know, in categories, be that cleaning, baby care, food, uh, travel, really insurances, finances, everywhere. And, and for me, it resonates with that sort of lack of trust. Yeah. Or, you know, to put it the other way, distrust <laughs> uh, into the system and, and being alienated from it and, and not believing anything they say is uh, really the, for me, is the sort of driving force behind this division of that the fact that there is a, you know, there's a schism, really, there's a gap between realities that, at least from where we see it, have fairly little, you know, there are very little bridges between them. So um, actually, very much to this point, we just completed an analysis that's going to be published next week about the usage of hashtags around uh, the different clusters. And what we found is that the hashtags that are being shared with, between different clusters are basically only politicians' names, not issues. So the whole clash and the, the conversation is reduced to, you know, Macron is great, Le Pen is fantastic or the other way around. But on a broader level, like Islamization or or migration or refugees or taxation, there is no discussion where people would share from here and there and expose themselves to ideas. So actually it's the conflicts or the clashes are limited to basically the images of, of candidates rather a broader political con- uh, you know, contest. Exactly. And this trend is, I mean, yeah, it's, it's another confirmation of it, which is this, this personalization. And the thing is, is that elections kind of get boiled down to battles between, you know, figureheads, uh, these party leaders. And I think, you know, going into the sociology a little bit, there's this idea that these candidates are the kind of symbolic figureheads that the the issues aren't being discussed as you're saying it's about the candidates but the candidates are kind of this outlet or this projection for people to identify with and it's it's a lot of it, elections get boiled down to feelings that are kind of represented as the battle between Macron and Le Pen but it's it's a more deeper divide between where people are coming from and what they feel and it it in terms of how this plays out on social media, it's it becomes it just dilutes the discourse. It's not substantial. Everyone's coming with their own opinion, and it's very polarized, and it's not very conducive to the democratic process. I think. Yes, it's everyone comes with their uh, opinions, but I think what is so 
scary in a way is that level of distrust that we you know find in this discourse and uh, in any other discourse that we look at really so there's this void of I don't know. I mean, I don't want to go too deeply in into sociology or quote Giddens or something, yeah. something like that. But but uh, I mean, people don't believe that uh, traditional media is doing the job. That there's corruption behind everything. Everything is not what it seems. So there's this whole, you know, sort of alternative reality uh, that is based uh, on the distrust. And for me, what is super interesting, by the way, is how how that sort of distrust that, you know, fake news, really, that came out of politics is now present in the food discussion, in the cat food discussion, in, you know, amazing different things. How do you mean? Well, I mean, most of our work is actually not, you know, for on elections, but it's about dog food or, or uh, you know, normal consumer goods or cereals and uh, and then we find out what people think feel and do around cereals or lamb meat or you know whatever right right and and we find that same sort of tendencies there as well of you know and in across different markets the u.s poland russia wherever uh, that 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 uh, most of these uh, conversations are triggered, especially these these negative conversations, are triggered by the fact that people don't trust. Yeah, they assume that they are being lied to. Yeah, I I I I get it, and I think that's the I think you're right. That's the me- kind of underlying mechanism here. Um, and what I think is interesting is I think there are legitimate reasons to be critical of the media and the way that they have been so commercialized over the past couple decades. And what's interesting, I think, is if you're a um, news provider now, digital is a huge part of your strategy. You have to be online and you have to conform to ways that fit the algorithm. You have to basically news organizations are in contact with Facebook and Facebook's telling them you need to report more or less this way in order for us to give you coverage. And so it's it's interesting that there is a huge distrust. The media have to um, adapt. They basically have to conform to Facebook in order to present their news. And it, it might dilute the quality of journalism, which then feeds back into distrust. So yeah. there's that kind of I agree that distrust is the is the mechanism, but I think the danger is that the social media providers have such a influence on how the news reports that ultimately can feed back into distrust through clickbait and, you know, sensational stories that that drive engagement but don't report. Um, uh, yeah, I couldn't disagree. Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> as, as a side thought, but no, I, just, no, I just wanted to put it I out there. I think that's a discussion that needs to be had. I mean, um, when we looked at the mechanisms of delivering what people call fake news, and I think uh, this whole fake news thing is uh, is somewhat disturbing in the sense that everyone uses the phrase without actually really knowing what it is. Mm-hmm. So we rather try to use disinformation instead of fake news. Uh, but, you know, I mean, what, the one interesting thing that comes out of it is that a lot of the campaigns, fake news campaigns or disinformation campaigns, leverage the brand names of or or the mechanisms of, you know, make traditional press or media to use it against them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, you know, 
they would go and, and write a blog piece on an open blog platform of Mediapart or, or Le Mans blog, blogging engine, and then share that, uh, re refer to that article as if it would have been written by that res respectable media organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's this... Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I don't know. Fake fake news. It's a it's it's a complicated uh, issue, but I th I think you're right in that it's it, my 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 beef with it is that there's as you said people use it indiscriminately, and I think a lot of what's being called fake news is just very hardly spun uh, in terms of. I guess this reframe category that you find is that it's a lot of it's not necessarily that it's fake. It's just that it's a very kind of a very hardly spun opinion that can't really be challenged. I don't know. Indeed, yes. I mean, it's carefully constructed. It contains enough facts, real facts, for it to be, you know, a formative opinion. But it mixes in um, elements from, for example, the alternative space that claims that, Amer you know, for example, IS is American. It's an American franchise, you know, and and it it does what Americans do. Mm. You know, so so it would pull in things that that's weird, and and then the whole like then the whole article changes, and the the meaning of those shared facts is also different. Exactly, and I think I mean I, I think what the um, again I would I would encourage uh, our listeners to go and and check out this study, which is it 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 really provides a nice overview of the landscape, which I, I think is the goal of the study, but it, it really reaffirms and, and, and provides insight at a sort of qualitative level of these these exact trends that we're talking about that are not going away, right? They're, they're um, seen in different contexts. And I think we're kind of starting to boil down what exactly these trends are, what the mechanisms are, and how it's working. And I think that the study is a very good kind of Lynchpin, I guess, it brings the French context, but it highlights so many larger societal trends that that social media uh, brings in into politics. But uh, I mean, we can talk about this uh, forever. Um, but there's two other reports that you guys are doing, and you've, you've talked about um, the second one a little bit. So, kind of, what's what, what's next? Yeah, the second one is provides an update on the numbers over the last few weeks since we've you know, lock down our first study and looks really at this common ground ideas by analyzing the influencers and the hashtag usages and looks at the emergence of this fake news complex by looking at in a qualitative way at the patterns of disinformation and also the narratives that emerge around Russian influence. Mm -hmm. And we took a current topic, Syria, because that sort of dominates uh, the Russian influence articles over the last few weeks. Right. And so the, so the second study is specifically on hashtags? Well, it's actually, we've, you know, computed all things. So we'll have an update on on the uh, social media landscape. Uh -huh. But we've done two more sort of deep dives, one around the hashtag usage and the key influencers who, who do the sharing of the articles uh, and a couple of you know, things like the yeah, kind of interesting. The symbolism, for example, in Twitter handles, mm -hmm. which I find uh, very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Of you know, being uh, the the usage of iconography, uh, you know, like the frog or that Arabic sign for Christianity, or and things like right um, around uh, influencers from belonging to different clusters. 
But and then another part of the study is also looking at the patterns of disinformation and the type of the narrative typology of, of you know, Russian influence. And then the third report will be actually quite different. It comes out after the elections for the parliament as well, so sort of end, end of June. And there we are actually going to do something quite different. We are going to look at the comments uh, that people make when sharing these articles. And the objective is really to understand why are they sharing this? What does it give them? What's the sort of rational and emotional need uh, that resonates with uh, people who, who are engaged in this conversation? I'm excited for that one. <laughs> it's something that I, <laughs> I, I work on myself. But uh, we'll definitely, we'll tweet those out. Uh, we'll throw them up on, on Facebook um, when they come out. And then, of course, this, uh, this study will include a link in the, uh, in the show notes. Great. Yeah. So, so Daniel, thanks so much for, for taking the time out and um, appreciate your, uh, your insights. And I'm looking forward to the next couple studies. Super. Great to be on this podcast. I've just been speaking with Daniel Fajakas, founder of Bakamo Social, a strategic social listening consultancy that looks at how conversations are taking place on social media. You can find the first of their three-part study on the French election social media landscape by going to bacamosocial.com. And we'll also make sure to shoot those out on our Twitter and Facebook page. That's at SMNP Podcast on Twitter. And if you go on Facebook and type in Social Media and Politics Podcast in the search box, our page should come right up. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed the show. I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, signing off from Copenhagen. See you next time.